Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for this morning. We're thankful that your mercies are new every morning, that we have the privilege to gather, talk about your word together. We pray as we read and listen to what you are saying by the Spirit through Job, as we listen to it, we would receive it with understanding by the working of your Spirit. Uh, with faith, and Father, that we would, we would be um, repentant where we need to be and have great joy. We're thankful that you are God, that you are um, above us in, in so many ways um, that it's difficult to apprehend you even, um, knowing that we can never comprehend you. We pray that um, as we study and and think how the Spirit would be with us. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're going to look at, um, we're going to look at this section of Job from Job 32, where we begin Elihu's speeches all the way through God's speeches and the conclusion of the book today. So it shouldn't take us, I mean, we should easily finish the book of Job today, and then um, next week we'll start Proverbs I have four weeks to do Proverbs before, hey Daniel, I have four weeks to start Proverbs before the break um, at Thanksgiving that'll hit, so we should be able to get through Proverbs as well. You might think, you'll get through all the Proverbs in four weeks? No, as I've told you guys so far, I'm not going through all of any of these books. I'm trying to give you a general understanding of them, so um, if we were doing a four-week series and I was trying to go through all the Proverbs, I wouldn't make it out of the first half, chapter one. You all know that. So we're going to try to spend some time just in these speeches of Elihu. If you remember, what was my contention about wisdom literature, whether we're talking about the prophets or or just, just, um, not the prophets, sorry, the writings, this whole section, or and, and particularly the wisdom literature of the writings, what was my contention? Their main purpose is to help God's people live in God's Good, good. So they don't really forward, particularly wisdom literature, doesn't really forward the story of the Bible that much. It tells you essentially what's, what, what does it mean to live as God's people in God's place, under his rule. In other words, blessed is a man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. So he is like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, etc. You guys know this psalm. That's kind of the gateway, the psalm, the psalter is the gateway to this, this whole section of scripture, if you will, um, particularly wisdom literature, um, that, that's telling us this is about life um, as one who walks in accord with God's law under his rule. Um, so what we're really looking at in the wisdom literature is, is how do we walk wisely in the fear of the Lord, right? How, what does that look like um, day to day? I told you that we have Job and Proverbs will follow. So as you read um, the Hebrew order of the canon, uh, Proverbs follows Job. Job. And Proverbs follows Job certainly um, chronologically in the, in the sense that Job is likely written during the patriarchal period, which is the period of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Proverbs largely are written by, Sol- uh, by Solomon. So, you know, 
in years, there, those, there are a number of years apart, centuries and centuries. Um, so Job comes first chronologically, but in the Hebrew or the canon, it comes first as well. Um, and I would argue that you can't read, um, or you can obviously do this, you ought not to read Job and Proverbs apart from one another. Um, I, I would tell you that um, Proverbs tells you, here's what's generally true. Live this way. Uh, you know, in other words, it's going to give you the general teaching that you reap what you sow. Live a godly life, right? In other words, sow godliness, reap prosperity. Sow wickedness, reap calamity. That's a general message of Proverbs. And the godly man sows godliness and so reaps prosperity. General message in Proverbs that you're going to see. Um, in the fear of the Lord, that's what he does. Uh, but if you just read Proverbs, now I would tell you that you can get some of this from Proverbs, but, but if you just read Proverbs and thought, a man reaps what he sows, if he fears the Lord and walks in godliness, he's generally going to have positive outcomes. And if he, if he doesn't, he's generally going to have negative outcomes. Uh, what would be your general assumption about life as a Christian? Do good, receive good. Uh, you might become like Job's three friends with a kind of mechanical view of how God works. Input godly actions, receive um, good fruit all the time, right? You guys know that from the Proverbs, you know, where you're told to go to the ant, right? It's the hardworking person who receives the increase, et cetera, et cetera, Okay. Are there hardworking farmers, though, that sometimes don't receive the increase? Yeah, of course there are, right? So we can, we can uh, note that there's a storm that comes on a farmer's crops, and off it goes, no matter how hard he worked, right? He has no control. Now, if you're, if you, if you're not reading the Scripture as a whole together, you might come to that farmer and say, I'm not sure what you did to tick off God, but it must have been something. Right? He must be punishing you or disciplining you for some sin. And that's essentially what Job's friends contend. Um, Job is a book that comes along and tells you, actually, you can walk in the fear of the Lord and godliness and still face calamity at God's hand. And still face calamity at God's hand. Um, now, if you read Job without Proverbs, you would think the three friends have nothing upon which they're basing their arguments. Right? Um, that there is no reaping and sowing that that actually isn't taught in the Bible, though it is. You guys know that. that's a biblical teaching. You reap what you sow, right? So that's a biblical teaching. What you're seeing Job, Job's three friends do is basically look at, look at what Job's reaping, and then they begin to imagine what he must be sowing, right? So we take these together. Um, we worked through their speeches and Job's response, what was, what, were their, what was their general contention? Job, you must have sinned in some way that brought this about. What was Job's answer? No, I did not sin in any way that would have brought this about. That's Job's answer. My sin did not bring this about. Okay? Um, what else does Job do, though, that you, as you read, you think, I think this sounds problematic. He said, I didn't, I didn't sin. There was no particular sin I committed that caused this. 
But there is something Job does that, that begins to seem, do we need to pull down another chair? Um, that begins to seem, there's a whole bunch of them here, begins to seem problematic. You guys remember? As he's giving his speeches. Anything? He, he, he begins to demand of God an explanation, and he, he also asserts he's never going to get one. He wants to put God on trial. He said it more than once um, to demonstrate his innocence. And we're going to learn that this is, this is where Job sins. So I'm, I'm going to make this really clear. What Job was suffering did not come, up, did not come upon him because of his sin. But in his sin, or in his suffering, he began to sin. You guys understand the distinction? He was suffering not because of sin, but in his suffering, he began to sin. Right? And that's, that's what Elihu is going to come along and challenge first. I, Elihu is a bit of, um, of a difficult character. Elihu is difficult because scholars have argued for centuries over whether or not we read Elihu positively negatively or in some mixed way. In other words, is Elihu um, speaking the truth in his speeches? Is he speaking error in his speeches like one of Job's three friends? Or, or is it some kind of a mixed bag? I'm going to argue that Eli- we should take Elihu positively. In other words, Elihu speaking the truth. Um, and I'm just going to call this whole section from Job 32 through the end of Job, I'm just going to call it the justification of God. In other words, Job in his speeches has been justifying himself, right? I didn't sin to bring this about. I'd like to put God on trial. And now Elihu is going to come in, and then God just after him, and we're going to see Elihu and God, through their speeches, justify God. When I say justification, I don't mean declaration of righteousness, forgiveness of sins. I don't mean this is where God's sins are forgiven. So don't misunderstand me. I mean, I mean... God's name is being shown to be just, right? So um, we'll call that Elihu's speeches. Let's, let's talk about Elihu and why he's taken positively. Luke, can you hit the one on that says fan over there? Um, thank you. Why, why take him positively? I, I'm going to say first, with Elihu, we're looking at the justification of God from a prophet. In other words, I'm contending that Elihu is a prophet. And, and not just a prophet, but a Jewish prophet. And you're going to say, ah, why do you say he's a Jew? Let's, let's look at that. Elihu's name, Elihu, that's a Jewish name, by the way, not a Gentile name. His name um, and his lineage or his genealogy are Jewish. So let's look at that first. So these three, chapter 32, verse 1, Job 32, verse 1. So these three men ceased to answer Job. Because he was righteous in his own eyes. See, he had justified himself. Then Elihu, that's a Jewish name, the son of Bereshel, the Buzite of the family of Ram, burned with anger. So let's talk about his Buzite family of Ram lineage. Go, keep your hand there and look at Genesis 22. Genesis 22, and now I want you to look at verse 20. Now, after these things, 
It was told to Abraham, Behold, Milcah has borne children to your brother Nahor. Uz, his firstborn, Buzz, his brother. Um, Buzz is from Buzz that we get the Buzzites. Right? This is from whose family? Whose family is this? Abraham's brother. brother, Right? It's part of the family. Now look at Ruth. Book of Ruth, right after Judges. So, if you remember, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, and look at chapter 4. Remember, he is then Elihu, the son of Bereshel, the Buzzite of the family of Ram. Look at verse 18 in Ruth 4. Now, these are the generations of Perez. You guys remember, this is in the, the line of Christ um, and David. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered who? Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. Um, so he is of the family of Ram. Um, Elihu. This is why I will say it's an interesting sort of event that happens here. Elihu, we're going to learn, has been sitting there listening to the three friends in Job's bar this entire time in some sense. We don't know exactly when he comes on the scene, but, but it seems that he's come on the scene based on his own comments in the early going of this discussion. And he's remained quiet. Uh, he's a Jew. Who, the rest of these men, including Job, are Gentiles. They're all Gentiles. Yes, sir. Are you saying that all of the sons of Sarah are Jews? I, no, I'm not saying that. I'm saying he's re- related to Abraham's family and then being from the family of Ram specifically. So do I know his mother or father's side? No. Like, which, which one's mother's side, which one's father's side? Somehow he's tied up here. Uh, clearly it has to be his father's side to be of the family of Ram. That would be his father's side, for sure. Um, or he couldn't be of that family named that way. Um, but I, we don't know a lot more details about him. We don't know a lot more. Um, here, but here, here's the thing. These, these Gentiles are all sitting there, including Job, Gentile. And along comes and along comes a Jewish prophet to answer them, which I don't think is accidental. The, 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 what do the Jews have that the Gentiles do not have? Okay, they're the covenant people of God, which means they have the. Anybody know? Romans talks about this. What advantage there is there in being a Jew? They have the oracles of God, right? Um, Okay, so he comes along, and notice, notice the language here. Um, well, let me state this also. He's not only having to argue a Jewish prophet, but he's never rebuked for his speeches. So when you get to Job 42.7, the three friends are rebuked. Elihu is not rebuked. And Job never responds to Elihu. Elihu's not rebuked. It's just when you read the narrative, as, it's as if you read Elihu's speeches, and then God just says, all right, I'll take it from here. And just keeps on going, right? Um, but but let's, let's keep going. Look what he says. The, then Elihu, the son of Bereshel, the Buzzite of the family of Ram, burned with anger. He burned with anger at Job because he justified himself rather than God. He burned with anger also at Job's three friends because they had found no answer, although they had cl- declared Job to be in the wrong. So what, what's the first thing we note about him? Other than his genealogy, 
to some degree, at least the pieces of it we get. What do we note about him? What's, what's his state of mind? Or Okay, zealous for the Lord. He's burning with anger. So we'll stop and ask a question, because as Americans, if somebody burns with anger, they're clearly in sin, right? That's, that's what it, it means here, you know. If you're godly, you're, just, you're being sweet all the time. You're never burning with anger, right? That's, that, that tends to be our idea. Can, you burn with, can one burn with anger and be godly? What's your evidence for that, Tim? You assert it. What's the evidence? Okay, David. When David burns with anger, is he godly? Yeah, he burns with anger against the Philistines because they mock God's people. Okay, burns with anger against the because they mock God's people. Any other examples? Jesus. Jesus. That, that's sort of the example par excellence, isn't it? Like, once you get past him, it's like, <laughs> if Jesus can do it, it can be, it can be done in a godly way, right? <laughs> Paul does, right? We see the prophets do it. Um, so so it's, it, it happens throughout Scripture, Phineas seems to do that. Um, remember the spear of Phineas at the temple, the tabernacle? And the two people have sex in front of the tabernacle, and Phineas brings in a spear and just drives it through both of them and kills them, and then God commends him for his jealous, angry act, if you will. Um, okay, so apparently you can burn with anger and be godly, and it seems to be that's exactly what Elihu is doing. And he's burning with anger toward Job, and he's burning with anger toward Job's three friends. And what's the reason he burns with anger towards Job's three friends? They have no answer for him, right? That's, what's the reason they burn, he burns with anger towards Job? Because he justified himself, right? Um, I am not contending, and I don't think the book of Job is contending, that Elihu disagrees with Job. In other words, I don't, I don't think Elihu is anywhere saying, it is because of sin you committed that this calamity came upon you, Job. However, the reason Elihu is burning with anger is because Job is interested in upholding his own innocence, and he's not, he's not particularly interested in upholding the justice of God. Right? That isn't in the midst of the suffering. He, you don't hear Job going on and on and on about how good and just God is. Right, um, so that that becomes a lot. The reason a lie is angry. By the way, that tells you something about the man of God who speaks the word of God. The man of God who speaks the word of God by the Spirit of God, which we're going to find out here. That's the only way, by the way, to be a man of God speaking the word of God is by the Spirit of God. The man who does that um, is is a man who, in the midst of sin and error, burns with anger. He's not just like, well, you know, they're good people. They're trying hard, right? You're misrepresenting the name of God. That causes that man to burn with anger. I don't mean the man blows everybody up on social media, right? That's not what I mean. I'm, I mean he burns with anger. He's actually willing to address it. Um, and it's important for us to hear that because your primary concern is, is whose glory or whose name, Right? It should never be seen by us as something that we take in a nonchalant way that someone's misspeaking about God. That, that can't be something that we just go, well, they tried hard. They're good people, right? They're making a good effort. 
basically what you're saying there is the creature, the creature being upheld matters. God's name being upheld, not so important. Right? Um, and, and that's not a lie's posture at all. Nor is it of any godly man in scripture. It's never their posture. Um, all right, so look at, um, I said he burns the nation. Elihu speaks by the Spirit of God. Look at Gen, uh, Job 32. Let, let's just start at verse uh, 4. Now Elihu waited to speak to Job because they were older than he. Notice I, I said that he's listening to these older men speak. And as a younger man, he's going to wait. Um, that's typical deferential behavior in this culture and time. It's probably still a good practice. Um, you're a younger man, less experienced. It might be good for you to be quiet for a while. Let the older guys speak. However, interestingly enough, just because they're older doesn't mean they're wiser. We, this is going to come up. Somehow, um, you know, we tend to think that. That is not Elihu's position, right? Let's let it, look what he says. And when Elihu saw that there was no answer in the mouth of these three men, he burned with anger. In case you weren't sure that he was angry before, <laughs> you're reminded once again. And Elihu, the son of Bereshel the Buzzite, answered and said, I am young in years, and you were aged, right? In other words, in the Hebrews, you're saying, and you have many. I don't have very many years, and you have a whole bunch of years, right? That's what he's saying, okay? So he goes on. Therefore, I was timid and afraid to declare my opinion to you. I said, let days speak, and many years teach wisdom. In other words, what's he saying? He says, let days speak, and many years teach wisdom. What's his point? Well, yeah, but he, he's also saying older men are going to know better. Let days speak in many years, teach wisdom. You all have been around for a lot more days and years than I have, so you're going to have been taught a lot more wisdom, so I'll wait to listen to you. That's what he said. Now look what he goes on to say. But it is, it is the spirit in man, the breath of the Almighty, that makes him understand. The breath of the Almighty, the Ruach, the what we call the Spirit of God. What makes a man be wise? Age? No, what is it, Cutter? The Spirit of God. The Spirit of God. Let's be really clear on that. Um, age ought to be deferred to because, um, especially if you have an older godly man, he's had a lot longer to walk with the Lord and grow in wisdom. You guys follow me on that? Okay. However, age by itself does not make one more wise. Now, you can practice foolishness for a lot of years. <laughs> it does happen, right? You don't just like, oh, well, I'm 70, so for 70 years I practiced wisdom. Nope. Some guys become believers at 69, right? Um, or never do. And they're not necessarily more wise than the 20-year-old who's walking in the fear of the Lord, right? Have you guys read Spurgeon's devotions, Spurgeon's evening and morning devotions? Have you guys ever read those? Anybody done that? Okay. If you ever re read Spurgeon's e evening and morning devotions, you read it and you think, this man is wise. Like, wow, is he a godly wise man? This is incredible, the stuff he's writing. Some of which he was writing at 17, 18, 19, 20 years old. You read it and think, okay, well... Uh, He's different than me, right? When I was 17, I wasn't writing any of this stuff here, right? So you guys understand, like, wisdom is not necessarily because of, a, uh, you know, tied to age. Though, 
the general position of Elihu is right. He defers to these are older men, and if they're older godly men, they're going to have more wisdom than me. That, that's essentially. So then he listens and he thinks, oh, they lack understanding. Essentially contending the spirit of God is in me in, in a manner that he's not in them. You guys following so far? Okay. Uh, so then he goes, but, but the reason I call him a Jewish prophet is A, he's Jewish, and B, he's saying he's speaking um, by the Spirit of God. On more than one occasion, he makes that claim. Look at 3220, uh, yeah, 3220 through 22. He speaks as a prophet does. I, I, I must speak that I may find relief. I must open my lips and answer. I will not show partiality to any man or use flattery toward any person, for I do not know how to flatter, else my maker would soon take me away. All right. So first he's this Jewish man who says he speaks by the Spirit of God, and now he uses this language of, I must speak that I may find relief. I must open my lips and answer. Um, who, does that sound like anybody else to you? Sounds like Jeremiah. What did Jeremiah say? Yeah, the word of God is like fire in my bones. I, I, it just, I have to speak. I can't not speak the word of God. Right? That, that's essentially what Elias is Have you guys ever seen a friend or someone you love who is um, about to make a terrible decision and you just know what the word of God says and what they're about to do and you think, I can't keep my mouth closed. If I do, I feel like I'm going to come apart. Any, does that anybody have, have anybody? I need relief. It's got to come out, right? Okay? That's essentially what he's saying. I've got to speak on behalf of God's word. I have to for your sake, right? Okay. Um, sometimes I, I want to differentiate. When I was younger, I thought my wisdom with certain people needed to be shared even when they weren't asking and it wasn't necessarily needed to be shared, right? And I learned, oh, well, there's God's law and there's my application of God's law, and those two aren't exactly the same all the time, and I need to differentiate, um, and I need to understand the nature of the relationship I have with this person and whether or not they're asking for it. You guys understand that. So sometimes you can burn internally to say something that isn't really your place, and so you've got to work through that question. But, and, and the zeal is good. Be thankful you're zealous for those people and for the truth, but ask yourself the question whether it's, whether it's your turn to speak, if you will. Right? Because that's essentially what Elihu is doing. Um, sometimes, though, it's just obvious. You have to speak. Your believing friend is going to marry an unbeliever. The Bible's clear about that. You have to speak. Right? Um, your believing friend is going to marry and admittedly, uh, admittedly marry another believer who you don't like that much. Don't necessarily need to speak. <laughs> you guys understand the distinction there? <laughs> okay. All right. So you have to make that out. All right. Um, and then he goes on to say, I will not show partiality to any man or use flattery toward any person, for I do not know how to flatter, else my maker would soon take me away. What does it mean to flatter, and why can't he do it? I, I'm contending he's a prophet, so he can't flatter. Prophets aren't known for flattery, incidentally. Um, just, but what, what is flattery? Okay, and, and the men who speak to claim to speak on behalf of God and use flattery, telling people what they want to hear, 
He was flattered. What does the Bible refer to them as? False prophets. Right? They speak smooth words. Words that are easy to hear. Words that the crowds like. Right? They say peace, peace when there is no peace. Right? The false prophets. Uh, they don't flatter. They, they, they flatter. The true prophets don't flatter people. They don't care if you want to hear it or not. Right? In other words, he's, 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 he's like, I'm not going to flatter you here, Job. I'm going to tell you the straight up truth. Um, whether you enjoy hearing it or you don't enjoy hearing it, I'm going to tell it to you. Um, I had a, we were at the Banner Conference last week, and one of the pastors there is a pastor in France for the last 30 years, and a church planting pastor in France for the last 30 years, and he was speaking, and he, he made a comment at one point that it's, it's really odd for him to come to America just because um, there's so, he's, just, he's always struck by how much flattering is happening. He's like, I've never seen a people flatter everybody so much. You're just constantly flattering each other. Um, he said, I, you know, and the Proverbs tell me to beware of flatterers. <laughs> so, <laughs> right, and it's just like part of the culture. And I thought that's a, that's a fascinating, fascinating thing. It, it's, it's often true. I, I had an English guy tell me, Americans make a lot of empty promises. And I said, what do you mean by that? They come and say, hey, we'll go to lunch sometime. Let's get together sometime. Oh, yeah, I want to support your ministry at some point. And that's just like a way to say, I like you. I hope you're having a nice day. But they don't actually mean we're going to go to lunch and that, or we're, we're gonna, I'm going to support you or I'm going to do anything with you. They just say that stuff, right? Um, and the flattery kind of thing happens the same way. We just sort of say positive things about each other because it's kind of what we're supposed to do, so we make each other feel good, right, rather than speaking the truth. Um, All right, so false prophets um, do that stuff, right? False prophets do that stuff. All right, so Elihu speaks by the Spirit of God as a prophet does. Elihu's, um, I shouldn't say Elihu's, sorry, just say Elihu speaks as a man like Job, not um, as looking down his nose at him. Look at Job 33. So Elihu is a prophet speaking by the Spirit of God, but he's, he's also a man and he understands that. He's not better than Job. Um, Job 33 verse 1. But now hear my speech, O Job, and listen to my, all my words. Behold, I open my mouth. The tongue in my mouth speaks. My words declare the uprightness of my heart. And what my lips know, they speak sincerely. The Spirit of God has made me, and the breath of the Almighty gives me life. That's pressing you right back to Genesis 2, by the way. Answer me if you can. Set your words in order before me. Take your stand. Behold, I am toward God as you are. I, too, was pinched off from a piece of clay. Behold, no fear of me need terrify you. My pressure will not be heavy upon you. You you don't need to be afraid of me. I'm just a man just like you. Pinched off from clay, just like you. Um, I'm not thinking I'm somehow superior to you, right? Um, when you speak prophetically to people who are in sin, and you do so in way, such a way that you look down your nose at them, that's what the Bible means by do not judge lest you be judged, right? Um, it doesn't mean never discern nor judge and point out error in a brother, That's not what Jesus means when he says, do not judge lest you be judged. Because by the way, he goes on in the next passage, this is in Matthew 7, to teach you how to judge false and true 
preachers. He goes on to teach you how to judge them. Um, so when people say, do not judge lest you be judged. <laughs> like, read things in context, folks, because Jesus is going to go on and say, now, here's how you notice a wolf, right? Here's how you know the true thing. Um, that's called judging. But he's talking about a species of judgment. The species of judgment he's addressing, um, and which Elihu is saying, I'm not, I'm not participating in, is the species of judgment in which you look down at somebody as if you're better than them. Right? And Elihu is basically saying, I'm a man just like you. I'm not better than you. I'm just speaking on behalf of God. The truth to you. Okay. Um, so let's talk about Elihu's charge. Elihu's charge is not that Job is suffering because of a sin. That's not his charge. You're suffering because of your sin. That was the charge of the three friends. Okay? Uh, but that Job is sinning due to his suffering. In other words, now he's in sin due to his suffering. By the way, this is taken, you can see a little footnote there, Christopher Ash and his commentary on Job, the wisdom of the cross, um, which is excellent. If you want to read an excellent commentary on Job, Christopher Ash's commentary is excellent. This little um, turn of the phrase is taken from him. So um, Job is not suffering because of his sin, but Job is sinning due to his suffering. That's Elihu's charge. So let's look at that. Elihu argues Job is a sinner whom God is sanctifying through suffering as a work of divine favor. Now, notice the distinction there. Elihu is saying, you're suffering as a work of God's divine favor toward you. You're a sinner. You're not, this isn't happening because you sinned. It's, in other words, there's not some sin you committed that God is now just judging you for. He's saying, but comprehensively, like every other man, you're a sinner, and God is sanctifying you. This isn't divine discipline in the sense of God correcting an error. This is, if you will, divine discipline in the sense of God graciously sanctifying you further. Do you guys understand the distinction there? We can talk about discipline in this way in two senses. Um, I'm correcting error. That's discipline. So my, um, if I'm a football coach, so it's football season, if I'm a football coach, um, there's two ways I can discipline my players, right? If a guy makes a fumble, or let's say we have three or four fumbles in a game <clears throat> on, on Friday night as a high school football team, what do you think practice is like on Monday? It's a lot of picking up fumbles, right? <laughs> it's it's in, in, in running and other things because of unforced errors to drill into you not to commit any more unforced errors, right? There's a kind of punishment that comes for all of the unforced errors. He'll correct them and remind them thoroughly not to do that again. That's a kind of discipline. There's another kind of discipline, which is picking up fumbles that happens in practice, how to fall on them and wrap them up and essentially get yourself almost nearly into the fetal position with the ball, right? To cover it up well, um, not to chase it around, etc. That's, that's, a pra that's a kind of discipline where the coach is saying, not anybody's committed an error, but you're all humans. You're likely to commit some error here in playing the game. And so we're going to drill it into you so it becomes automatic not to err. You guys follow me on that? Okay. There's different kinds of discipline. One's corrective because you've done something wrong. The other is knowing what kind of person you are, I need to train you so that you do the right thing every time. Right? 
Okay? And what Elihu is essentially saying is not God's correcting you for something you did wrong, but God knows you're a human being and he's training you in righteousness. Following? Okay. So, so let's, let's look at that. Um, and, th- and by the way, when God does that, it's a sign of divine favor. Just like by the way, when he corrects you for error, it's also a sign of divine favor. Your father's, a father who loves his son does correct him for error too, right? But let's, let's look at that. Job 33, look at verse 12. Behold, in this you are not right, I will answer you, for God is greater than man. Why do you contend against him, saying he will answer none of man's words? For God speaks in one way, and in two, though man does not perceive it, in a dream, in a vision of the night, when deep sleep falls on men, while they slumber on their beds. Then he opens the ears of men, and terrifies them with warnings, that he may turn man aside from his deed, and conceal pride from, man, from a man. He keeps back his soul from the pit, his life from perishing by the sword. So you say God doesn't speak to men, but he does. And he speaks in a variety of ways, and, and he opens your ears to hear him. And, and why is he terrifying you? For what end? To save your life. Right? He's doing this to help you out, to um, turn you aside from your deeds, to conceal your pride. In other words, to somehow put down the pride. Right? To keep your soul back from the pit, your life from perishing by the sword. You guys understand what this is like. If you continue in a particular kind of error um, as a man, here's the kind of error I'm talking about. Um, you're going along having so much success, all seems well, um, you can start to think too highly of yourself. And what he's essentially saying is, you're doing really well, and the Lord is um, keeping you from pride, from going off the cliff, right, in pride. Um, that, that does happen. Reminding you of your creatureliness, your need, um, etc. All right, so go to, go to um, let, let's, let's go to 29 and 30 of verse, of chapter 33, chapter 33, chapter 33, verse 29 and 30. Behold, God does all these things twice, three times with a man to bring back his soul from the pit that he may be lighted with the light of life. What's the goal? To be restored, to bring him back from the pit. Look at chapter 36. Elijah is going to say this there in his third speech. We'll look at verses 5 through 10. We're going to look at these more than once, by the way. Um, Behold, God is mighty and does not despise any. He is mighty in strength of understanding. He does not keep the wicked alive, but gives the afflicted their right. He does not withdraw his eyes from the righteous, but with kings on the throne, he sets them forever, and they're exalted. And if they are bound in chains and caught in the cords of affliction, then he declares to them their work and their transgressions, that they are behaving arrogantly. He opens their ears to instruction and commands that they turn from iniquity. So in, in other words, like you, one, of the reasons he, one of the reasons he disciplines is just to, uh, you're hearing it again, the arrogance, concealing pride, He's reminding you of your creatureliness and your need, your dependence, 
um, to turn you from iniquity, to cause you to listen to his word. Right? Just generally what we all need all the time. Generally, the, the, the thing that we do first in sin, it seems now, is, um, I don't mean now like as in today, but since the fall, is we begin to blur the distinction between the creator and the creature. And we begin to think, um, we begin to toss off our creatureliness. Um, and, and Job is essentially being taught by Elihu um, that the, the more that you do that, um, you know, it's just because of sin. Um, God is gracious and comes along and reminds you you're a creature. And you're in need of him. And you should listen to his word and not your own. Right? Um, that, that is what humility is. You guys know that, right? Humility isn't coming along all the time saying, oh, golly gee me, I'm, I'm not very great and you're, you're so much better than me and whatever. That's not humility. Humility is listening to God's word. That's humility. Trembling at his word. Right? I, I know in our culture we've made humility into an affect. Do you guys know what I mean by that? Pride and humility are affects. In other words, it's the kind of aesthetic vibe I get, get off of somebody. Um, that guy just seems prideful to me because he just carries himself a particular way. That, that guy seems humble because he carries himself a particular way. It may be true um, that, that that guy is prideful and that guy is humble. I don't really know. The, 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 de- the definition biblically of humility and pride, though, is do you listen to God's word or your own? Fundamentally. It's not an aesthetic, right? It's not a feel you get from people. It's an actual do they listen to God's word or do they listen to their own? Um, but, you know, if you don't understand how we've turned everything into aesthetics in our culture, feels we get from things, um, then read Carl Truman's book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. He'll clear it up for you. Um, <laughs> it's, it's, it's a multi-hundred-year move, actually. Over the last few hundred years, we've made that move as a culture, and it's delivered to us transgenderism. Um, and you'll think, wow, that seems like a big jump. Well, read the book and you'll see how it's happened. Um, it's, it's quite interesting. If you don't want to read it because it seems too challenging, he is coming out with a popular level version in the next year sometime for the average person in the, in the pew that's, that's on the, in the works right now. All right. Um, Elihu argues Job has sinned in response to suffering by charging God as an uncaring enemy. In other words, um, Elihu is going to say, Job, you've sinned in regard to your suffering. Your sin didn't bring about your suffering, but you've sinned in regard to your suffering. As you've suffered, you've sinned uh, because you've essentially charged God with being an uncaring enemy. And you guys have heard him say, basically, God's my enemy. And, 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 he, and I'm, I've got all these questions for him, and he's never going to come answer me. Right? Some kind of uncaring enemy. So look at Job 34. Job 34. <clears throat> I'm not going to read all 37 verses. I just wrote Job 34, 1 through 37, because clearly the whole chapter is about that. I'll just give you an idea of that. Then Elihu answered and said, Hear my words, you wise men, and give ear to me, you who know. For the ear tests words as the palate tastes food. Let us choose what is right. He's talking about discernment or judgment here. Let us know among ourselves what is good. For Job has said, I am in the right, and God has taken away my right. In spite of my right, I am counted a liar. My wound is incurable, though I am without transgression. What man is like Job who drinks up scoffing like water? 
who travels in company with evildoers and walks with wicked men. For he has said, it profits a man nothing that he should take delight in God. You, you hear, he's quoting Job, by the way. Um, do you, you hear what Job's been saying that Elijah's taking issue with? You're essentially saying it's, there's, no, there's no good in walking with God. There's no profit in it. None. And, and Elijah's coming after that saying, Job, like, that's sin. That's wicked to claim that. That's wicked. Like, you were a godly man who didn't, des- you know, deserve what happened to you as a kind of a just reward. It happened to you. You don't even know why. Um, but now that you're in it, what you're saying is wicked. You can't say God doesn't care for you or there's no good in being godly or righteous, right? Or walking with the Lord. Um, so he goes on and um, look at verse 16. If you have understanding, hear this. Listen to what I say. Shall one who hates justice govern? Will you condemn him who is righteous and mighty? Uh, right? I mean, like, go look at um, verse 21. For his eyes are on the ways of a man, and he sees all his steps. Um, verse 36. Would that Job were tried to the end, because he answers like wicked men. For he adds rebellion to his sin. He claps his hands among us and multiplies his words against God. So 35, 1. And Elihu answered and said, Do you think this to be just? Do you say it is my right before God that you ask what advantage have I? How am I better off than if I had sinned? Right? That's what Job's asking. How am I better off than if I had sinned? I will answer you and your friends with you. Look at the heavens and see and behold the clouds which are higher than you. If you have sinned, what do you accomplish against him? And, your transgre- and if your transgressions are multiplied, what do you do to him? If you are righteous, what do you give to him? Or what does he receive from your hand? What's, what's he contending here? What's he contending? Yeah, yeah, you're not adding anything to God. You're not taking away from anything from him. You're not adding anything to him. He's God, right? Um, he's just. He's good. You shouldn't speak about him this way. It's essentially saying Job has crossed a line. Um, and, and, you know, I don't care how righteous you were. God didn't know you anything. This is the kind of thing. You guys remember the, the parable of the, um, uh, of the steward who basically um, does all the work. And, 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 you know, what, what's, and Jesus responds to him after the work is done. He's not owed anything because he's only done what what was required of him right as a creature god doesn't owe him a reward do you guys remember that okay it's the same kind of thing god made you as a creature when he made you does he owe you anything no so the question that's one of the fundamental questions why does god promise a reward to adam in the garden for obedience think about this adam's in the garden if he's perfectly perpetually obedient he'll be rewarded with eternal life. If Adam is perfectly perpetually obedient to the creator who made him, the lawgiver who made him, does Adam merit anything? Even as an innocent man, wholly innocent, no sin, perfectly perpetually obedient, does, does he now put God in his debt? You owe me some reward. No, no man can put God in his debt. Right? So why does God promise him eternal life? 
What did you say? Because God's good. That's right. I mean, there's really no other answer than that. God decides to be good to him. That's it. I don't owe you a reward for doing your duty, I, I'm, but I'm going to reward you if you do your duty. Now, Adam doesn't do his duty. <laughs> so he gets the curse instead of the, re- the, the reward, right? But um, what he's essentially saying to Job is, God doesn't owe you anything. That's what Elias is saying. He doesn't owe you a reward, right? Um, uh, you can't indebt him to you, yourself. All right, Job 36, 17. Job 36, 17. Just to see this again. Elihu speaking to Job. But you were full of the judgment on the wicked. Judgment and justice seize you. Beware, lest wrath entice you into scoffing. And let not the greatness of the ransom... um, Turn you aside. Will, you, will your cry for help avail to keep you from distress or all the force of your strength? Do not long for the night when peoples vanish in their place. Take care. Do not turn to iniquity. For this you have chosen rather than affliction. Behold, God is exalted in his power. Who is a teacher like him? Who has prescribed for him his way? Or who can say, You have done wrong? Remember to extol his work, of which men have sung. All mankind has looked on it. Man beholds it from afar. Behold, God is great, and we know him not. The number of his years is unsearchable. Um, you guys follow what's happening here. You, you, you don't, don't, don't put God under your judgment. Say he's done wrong in some way. Job, that's what you're doing, and you shouldn't. Like, and he's, he's going to go on and say, God is great. And we know him not. What does he mean by that? We don't him. Exactly. We can't possibly comprehend him or his ways. Okay. Um, you guys know the distinction between, comp- between comprehension and apprehension. Okay. Um, to comprehend something is to enclose it within your mind or knowledge. You can. You can wrap your mind around it. You can say, I just can't wrap my mind around that. Well, every time God comes up, that should be your statement. <laughs> because you can't. So, so to comprehend is to wrap your mind around something, to get a hold of it fully and enclose it within your own thinking. To apprehend something is to get a hold of it. Like, you know, I'm apprehending this phone. I've just gotten a hold of it. But I'm not comprehending it. See, my fingers can't enclose the hole. You guys follow me on that? So I've apprehended. As, as Christians... As creatures, we apprehend the truth about God or God, but we never comprehend. We sort of get a hold of the train of his robe, right? But there's no way our minds wrap all the way around him. Um, and, and that's essentially what Elihu is saying. Job, the best we have is like, we just have a little tiny grip on him, Right? There's, we, we just can't wrap our minds around him. Can't do it. You don't know him. And, and his years are what? The number of his years is unsearchable. You, you just, like he's eternal. Infinite. Um, so you're temporal and finite. You can't possibly comprehend what he's up to. Just isn't going to happen. Right? What, what Elijah is pressing on is the proper creator-creature distinctions. 
if you understand who God is, um, then you'll close your mouth a lot more. That's essentially the contention. You won't look down at him. You won't judge him. You'll lift his name up. The only way your reason your mouth is going to open is to praise him. Um, but to judge him, you know, you won't. Um, this is the, the, the phrase in Habakkuk. Uh, and you'll see it in, in Romans 3, right? Phrase in Habakkuk, let all the earth keep silence. The phrase and you hear in Romans 3 is that um, you'll stand before God and your mouth will be shut or stopped, right? Um, Elihu exalts God's majesty and righteousness as a transition to God's speeches. So let's look at Elihu's transition. Chapter 37. He's going to, and this is how we transition. We'll have Elihu extolling God's majesty and righteousness, and then God will come in and speak. And, and that's one of the, I think, contextual clues that tells you Elihu is a transitional figure from the false, um, you know, the, the friends who are speaking falsely, Job defending himself, to the prophet who comes and speaks truly on behalf of God to justify God and transitions to God himself now speaking, right? So um, let's look at Job 37 briefly. At this also my heart trembles and leaps out of its place. Keep listening to the thunder of his voice and the rumbling that comes from his mouth. Under the whole heaven he lets it go and his lightning to the corners of the earth. After it, his voice roars. He thunders with majestic voice, and he does not restrain the lightnings when his voice is heard. God thunders wondrously with his voice. He does great things that we cannot comprehend. For to the snow, he says, fall on the earth. Likewise to the downpour, his mighty downpour. He seals up the hand of every man, that all men whom he made may know it. Then beasts go into their lairs and remain in their dens, from its, chambers come, from, from its chamber comes the whirlwind and cold from the scattering winds. By the breath of God, ice is given, etc., etc. What, what's he talking about here now? What's he going off into? Descriptions of what? What's he describing? All these acts of nature. We call them acts of nature, right? All these acts of nature. And what he's saying is, listen... God does all those, and you can't even comprehend those. You can't comprehend God's actions. He's not saying you can't be a scientist and study them and observe them and think about them. Um, but even, even the created things you can't, you can't comprehend. Even God's acts in nature, you can't. You guys understand that, right? Go into the, the discipline of, of science. We're not, we still are unable to, and probably will, and I would imagine never be able to wrap our minds around a whole lot of things that are just happening in the creation that God's up to. Um, there's any numbers of things. That's why we have a thing called the scientific method in which we make, what? What's the first thing we make in it? Right? Correct. We make observations. I know you guys are trying, but Okay. Right? Observations. And then we make a hypothesis. And we start to test that. And if we find it to fail in some way, we modify it. Right? Make more observations, hypothesis, etc. And, and we have this method that we're, we're participating in. Um, that's why, you know, statements like, 
follow the science are just stupid on their face. What, because the science is constantly improving its understanding of things, as we all know. It's just, it's sophistry, right? It's just a way to, you, to use words to take power um, or to abuse power. That's exactly right. And I think we have to understand that, that good scientists are those who recognize the limits of their, uh, of their science, if you will. They, they recognize the limits of their creatureliness um, and what they're actually able to observe and, and hypothesize about, et cetera, um, and test. That's, that's really what gets us um, going. I, I've, in fact, if you reflect on the, on the creation properly as a creature, science becomes really exciting. If you miss that, science just becomes a tool of politics, to be honest with you, in our era, because the, do you guys know what I mean when I say the pre-political is dead in our era? Pre-political, meaning things like, things like clubs like Boy Scouts can't be just not political anymore, right? You know, everything has to be politics in America now. You guys know that, right? Everything is politics in America for some weird reason. We've just gone off into, it's all po politics. Used to be actually you could just have a bowling club or something, but now it needs to be like a Republican conservative bowling club or a, a masking bowling club or a non-masking or a vaccinated one. Like everything is just politics now, everything. Um, and, and unfortunately, um, if we could just get back to, to, to the way things once were, I don't know when that's coming or if it's coming. Um, but, but what Elias is essentially saying, you're a creature. You don't even comprehend God's works. Not, it's not just you don't comprehend God. It's you don't even fully comprehend his works. You're just, you're apprehending his works. You guys all just look into the galaxies sometime through some big telescope. Look out into the universe and, and, and then join the, all the astrophysicists who, who are just trying to figure out all of that, right? Um, or, or, or take a microscope and look at a cell and still trying to figure out all that too. <laughs> you guys understand? So, and he's just saying, you're a, cre you're a creature. You don't know as much as you think you know, Job. Be sufficiently humble. That's what God's doing. Um, all right, look, look at chapter 37. Um, Verse 13, he's do, God's doing all these things. He says, whether for correction or for his land or for love, he causes it to happen. And you really don't know why. Does it for his own purpose. Hear this, verse 14, O Job, stop and consider the wondrous works of God. Just stop and consider the wondrous works of God. Go down to verse 23. The Almighty, we cannot find him. He is great in power. Justice and abundant righteousness he will not violate. Therefore, men fear him. He does not regard any who are wise in their own conceit. Do you, do you hear the general thrust of what Elihu is getting at? You're going to notice this will transition very well into what God's about to say. Right? Transitions very well into what God's about to say. You're a creature. You actually don't know what's happening don't you dare put God under the lens of your judgment. Be sufficiently humble. Do not sin. Right? That's what he's arguing. You, you can't possibly know 
all there is to know about God and his works. Okay? Now, Elihu says that. Is that essentially what God's going to come and say? Basically. Okay, so um, the justification of God from himself. God gives two speeches. God's first speech um, starts at chapter 38. Um, and his speech, and I'm going to read them, by the way. So then I'm just going to read them. And you're going to listen. That's it. That's all that's going to happen, right? I'm just going to tell you what that, his first speech is that Yahweh is the powerful and majestic creator. Let all the earth keep silence is essentially his first speech. The, the, the let all the earth keep silence comes from Habakkuk. But, um, and what you'll see at the end of the first speech is this. God's going to give a speech saying, I'm the powerful, majestic creator. You should stop your mouth. And what Job is going to do is Job is going to stop his mouth. But he doesn't yet repent. He doesn't repent yet. He stops his mouth, but he doesn't repent. Then God comes in and speaks again. And he says, I rule over all the creation. I rule over the moral order. Who can judge me? At the end of that, then Job repents. And he's restored. So we're just going to basically finish um, the morning hearing God speak to Job and seeing Job's response and seeing Job restored. So let's look at Job 38. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you and you make it known to me. If you remember, Job's been questioning God, and now it's changed. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk, or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together, and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Or who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb? When I made clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band and prescribed limits for it and set bars and doors and said, thus far you shall come and no farther. And here shall your proud waves be stayed. Have you commanded the morning since your days began and caused the dawn to know its place that it might take hold of the skirts of the earth and the wicked be shaken out of it? It is changed like clay under the seal and its features stand out like a garment. From the wicked, their light is withheld, and their uplifted arm is broken. Have you entered into the springs of the sea, or walked in the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death been revealed to you, or have you seen the gates of deep darkness? Have you comprehended the expanse of the earth? Declare, if you know all this. Where is the way to the dwelling of light? And where is the place of darkness, that you may take it to its territory, and that you may discern the paths to its home? You know, for you were born then, and the number of your days is great. You can just hear the sarcasm dripping, right? Have you entered the storehouses of snow? Or have you seen the storehouses of hail, which I reserve for the time of trouble, for the day of battle and war? What is the way to the place where the light is distributed, or where the east wind is scattered upon the earth? Who has cleft a channel for the torrents of rain, and a way for the thunderbolt to bring rain on a land where no man is, on the desert in which there is no man, to satisfy the waste and desolate land and to make the ground sprout with grass. Has the rain a father? Or who has begotten the drops of dew? From whose womb did the ice come forth? And who has given birth to the frost of heaven? The waters become hard like stone and the face of the deep is frozen. K 
Can you bind the chains of the Pleiades or loose the cords of Orion? Can you lead forth the Mazareth in their season? Or can you guide the bear with its children? All of that seems to be um, astronomical kind of markers or star, uh, constellations in the heavens. Do you know the ordinances of the heavens? Can you establish the rule on the earth? Can you lift up your voice to the clouds that a flood of waters may cover you? Can you send forth lightnings that they may go and say to you, here we are? Who has put wisdom in the inward parts or given understanding to the mind? Who can number the clouds by wisdom or who can tilt the water skins of the heavens when the dust rain uh, runs into a mass and the clods stick fast together? Can you hunt the prey for the lion or satisfy the appetite of young lions when they crouch in their dens or lie in wait in their thicket? Who provides for the raven its prey when its young ones cry to God for help and wander about for lack of food? Do you know when the, mountains, when the mountain goats give birth? Do you observe the calving of the does? Can you number the months that they fulfill? And do you know the time when they give birth? When they crouch, bring forth their offspring, and are delivered of their young? Their young ones become strong. They grow up in the open. They go out and do not return to them. Who has let the wild donkey go free? Who has loosed the bonds of the swift donkey, to whom I have given the arid plain for his home and the salt land for his dwelling place? He scorns the tumult of the city. He hears not the shouts of the driver. He ranges the mountains as his pasture, and he, hears, and he searches after every green thing. Is the wild ox willing to serve you? Will he spend the night at your manger? Can you bind him in the furrow with ropes, or will he harrow the valleys after you? Will you depend on him because his strength is great, and will you leave to him your labor? Do you have faith in him that he will return your grain and gather it to your threshing floor? The wings of the ostrich wave proudly, but are they the pinions and plumage of love? For she leaves her eggs to the earth and lets them be warmed on the ground, forgetting that a foot may crush them and that the wild beasts may trample them. She deals cruelly with her young as if they were not hers. Though he la her labor be in vain, yet she has no fear because God has made her forget wisdom and given her no share in understanding. When she rouses herself to flee, she laughs at the horse and his rider, in other words, even, even the ostrich doesn't have to worry because of the way God has made it, right? Though its eggs are left in, out in the open. Do you give the horse's might? Do you clothe his neck with a mane? Do you make him leap like the locust? His majestic snorting is terrifying. He paws in the valley and exults in his strength. He goes out to meet the weapons. He laughs at fear and is not dismayed. He does not turn back from the sword. Upon him rattle the quiver, the flashing spear and the javelin. With fierceness and rage, he swallows the ground. He cannot stand at the sound of the stand still at the sound of the trumpet. When the trumpet sounds, he says, "Aha!" He smells the battle from afar, the thunder of the captains and the shouting. Is it by your understanding that the hawk soars and spreads his wings toward the south? Is it at your command that the eagle mounts up and makes his nest on high? On the rock he dwells and makes his home. On the rocky crag and stronghold, for there he spies out the prey. His eyes behold it from afar. His young ones suck up blood, and where the slain are, there he is. And the Lord said to Job, Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer it. Right? Um, you understand what he's doing. He's just ranging over creation and saying, What do you have to do with any of this? What power or comprehension do you have over any of it? None. Right? You're a creature. Shut up. Right? Stop your mouth. Then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? 
I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once, and I will not answer twice, but I will proceed no further. Um, that humility is starting to set in. You guys follow that? In other words, the humility Elihu was calling for is coming. This is, this is the kind of thing you hear in Habakkuk when the Lord ascends his temple. And it says the Lord has ascended his temple, and it says, let all the earth keep silence. Like God is on the throne, be quiet. Right? And that's essentially what the Lord is saying to Job. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind. Now we're going to hear about God's rule over the whole creation. I won't read all of this. I will pick on a couple of sections here just because people wonder what they are. And then I'll give you a really dissatisfying answer. You ready? Verse 6, Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Dress for action like a man. I will question you and you make it known to me. Will you even put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me that you may be in the right? See, in other words, Elihu's gotten this right. Have you an arm like God, and can you thunder with a voice like his? Adorn yourself with majesty and dignity. Clothe yourself with, splendor, with glory and splendor. Pour out the overflowings of your anger, and look on everyone who's proud and abase him. Look on everyone who's proud and bring him low. And tread down the wicked where they stand. Hide them all in the dust together. Bind their faces in the world below. Then I will also acknowledge to you that your own right hand can save you. Like you can't do anything. So you can't save yourself. You should be quiet. Right? And acknowledge who I am. Now, what's interesting is he's going to go on to these two creatures. The behemoth and the leviathan. Okay? Behemoth, behold, verse 15, behemoth. What is behemoth? Um, <laughs> we're not entirely sure. Descriptively, um, he said, Behold, behemoth which I made as I made you, he eats grass like an ox. Behold, his strength is in his loins and his power in the muscles of his belly. He makes his tail stiff like a cedar. The sinews of his thighs are knit together. His bones are tubes of bronze. His limbs like bars of iron. Descriptively, he sounds like he could be a hippopotamus. Or a or a elephant or a dinosaur, right? We're not really sure. He he sounds descriptively like a creature. That's what I'm saying. First and foremost, he sounds descriptively like a creature. Um, we don't know what's meant by his tail is stiff like cedar. That could actually be a reference to his um, his erection for the purpose of procreation or his procreative ability. Um, that it's it's difficult to translate. But, but notice the next verse, verse 19. He is the first of the works of God. Let him who made him bring near his sword. Uh, and you're not going to be able to kill him. So is he a hippo, an elephant, a dinosaur? Or is this a reference to some kind of evil mythological creature? When I say evil mythological creature, I don't mean it's not real. I mean we talk about a mythological way of speaking about Satan. Is it some kind of reference to um, some sort of demonic um, power? We, we don't know. It could be. Um, particularly Leviathan could be. Right? So look down at verse 40 or chapter 41. Can you draw Leviathan out with a fish hook? Now, so guys, when we're going to go on and read about Leviathan here in a minute, um, 
we, you know, some guys say it sounds like the description of a crocodile, right? Though he's a crocodile who breathes fire and smoke comes from his nose. Um, some guys say he's a dinosaur. Some guys argue they're dragons. I have heard young earth guys say that there were dragons until even recent centuries. Um, and they're real things, and this is a dragon. Um, anyway, so... <laughs> I, oh, oh, could it be described as a dragon um, as in the way Satan is described as a dragon in Revelation? Very possibly, right? Uh, very possibly. So, so look at verse 18 through 21. His sneezing flash, flash forth light and his eyes are like the eyelids of the dawn. Out of his mouth go flaming torches. Sparks of fire leap forth. Out of his nostrils come forth smoke as from a boiling pot and burning rushes. He breathes, kindle, he, his breath kindles coal and a flame comes forth from his mouth. Or um, you can go down to verse um, 34. Let's look at the last description of Leviathan. You can't kill him, by the way. You can't kill Leviathan. You can attack him with all your weapons. You can't kill him. But look at verse 34. He sees everything that is high. He is king over all the sons of pride. Right? It, it sure sounds like it might, these might be some kind of description of satanic um, um, beings like Satan himself. Okay? At the end of the day, I'm not sure. Uh, but, and that's probably dissatisfying to you. Here's the point that's being made that I think is really important. Um, and, and I think sometimes guys miss it. What, what he's saying essentially is, God is sovereign. God rules over the whole moral order. Not just all of creation, but the moral order as well. That's what he's getting at. He, he, or, he rules over it all. Not just created things, but the way he orders them morally. He rules over it all. He's even ruling over, if you will, the creatures that, that even if they're mythological, these t- creatures that terrify you, that are unkillable, right? In a sense, he rules over them. He, if, these, if this is speaking of Satan in some way, he rules over him, right? Um, which he's king over all the sons of pride. And then the language in Revelation that Satan is that dragon certainly gives you the sense that this may be referencing him. Um, but it's debatable. So what you won't hear me do is, if I ever preach Job, is go through the history of evidence of where they think they might have found dinosaurs or, or um, which we have, or dragons. Um, uh, the last dragon being claimed to really exist, you guys know which one it is? What, huh? The Loch Ness Monster, yeah. The young earthers say that, lo- you know, the Loch Ness Monster is sort of the last dragon that we know about. Um, anyway, I'm not, you're not going to hear that from me in a sermon anywhere in the future. Um, all right. Job 42, Job's repentance. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand. And he's quoting God about himself. Therefore, I uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Hear and I will speak. I will question you and you make it known to me. He's quoting God again and he answers, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust, dust and ashes. Like I was not properly accounting for the God of whom, to whom I was, you know, of whom I was questioning. That's what he's saying. I repent. 
After the Lord had spoken these words to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, My anger burns against you and against your two friends, for you have spoken to me what is, uh, not spoken to me what is right, as my servant Job has. Now therefore take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and offer a burnt, up a burnt offering for yourselves, and my servant Job shall pray for you. For I will accept his prayer not to deal with you according to your folly, for you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. So Eliphaz the Temanite and Bildad the Shuite and Zophar the Namathite went and did what the Lord had told them, and the Lord accepted Job's prayer. This is amazing grace. These men spoke falsely about God, and God gracious, is gracious to them. Right? And Job, Job acts as a priest on their behalf. And God accepts his prayers for them. Um, and the Lord restores Job, restores Job. And we might want to say this restoration of Job is a kind of resurrection. We'll call it a kind of resurrection. So he says, And the Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he had prayed for his friends. And the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. Then came to him all his brothers and sisters and all who had known him before and ate bread with him in his house and they showed him sympathy and comforted him from all the evil or calamity that the Lord had brought upon him. And each of them gave him a piece of money and a ring of gold. And the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning. And he had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen and 1,000 female donkeys. He had also seven sons and three daughters. He called the name of the first daughter Jemima, and the name of the second Keziah, and the name of the third Karen Hapuk. And in all the land there were no women so beautiful as Job's daughters, and their father gave them an inheritance among their brothers. And after this, Job lived 140 years and saw his sons and his sons' sons, four generations, and like Abraham, and Job died an old man and full of days. Same language used in Genesis, by the way. Um, so, so the Lord restores him um, fully. And this is really pressing forward to the kind of restoration that we have in Christ. The, the, the idea here isn't um, Job finally repented, so God made him rich again with lots of children again, as if that somehow takes away from all the loss. That's not the point. Um, the, 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 point, the point is that, that um, God is a God who shows grace to his people and restores them in the end. All right, so I've gone over by five minutes. Any questions? So next week, Proverbs. So what should you read? Like the whole book. It's only 31 chapters. It's not that long. You have plenty of days. If you read, you know, six chapters a day, five chapters a day, you'll more than finish it. Five chapters of Proverbs a day will probably take you 15 minutes, right? If you really go slow, it might take you 25 or 30 minutes. So you just have to watch one less episode of The Office this week or something. You know, anyway, all right, so you can get through it. You can entertain yourself a bit less than you already do. Um, anyway, <clears throat> And, and you can get through it. So let's, we'll, we'll get into that book next week. Let me pray. Father, we're thankful for um, your kindness to us. We're thankful for the way in which you were kind to Job. Um, what we learn from this book, Job um, never knew what you were doing and should never have questioned you. Um, we don't know what you're doing and we ought to keep silence as well. May we... May we know that you're God and we are not. 
and always exalt your majesty and goodness and justice. Never question it. No matter what's happening, um, trust that, that you're God. We, we pray that we would do that. In Jesus' name, amen.